Welcome to the Zeal Interestings podcast, where we discuss an interesting article or link from the week. I'm your host, Chris White. My co-hosts for this week are Amy Dutton and Trevor Yersh. Thanks for joining me, guys. Yep, we're excited. <laughs> I'm, I'm also excited. We're also going to find it. This is our first three-person podcast, right? It is and our first gonna, three-person. And we have to um, uh, both be courteous with each other and also not uh, allow for just uh, no one to talk because we're trying to be too courteous. So That's right. That's right. <laughs> Um, I'm very excited about doing a three-person podcast. Um, You know, I I feel like it's great to have, because both of you are, you know, serve roles as designers on our team, but also you serve like very different, you serve those roles in very different capacities. And so I think it's going to be an excellent conversation. Um, So today we're talking about an article titled, How to Stop UX Research from Being a Blocker by Ben Ralph on the Muesli blog. Uh, the, the article talks about the friction of integrating a UX research design process into the agile software development process and suggests a framework for fixing those issues. Um, so we never have this problem where any sort of friction happens between UX design and, uh, and the software development agile process, right? Never. That's why we're the perfect ones to talk about this topic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, ultimately, you know, it comes down to two key points for me. I'm really excited to dig through this article because this is actually a really in-depth article covering uh, just a lot about the topic. At Zeal, I think one of our primary goals, uh, obviously as a, as a consultant, we really approach things in a pragmatic fashion, right? And so uh, uh, like being a team on a project is one of the most important things. And uh, for a long time in our industry, there was this whole notion of, you know, designers being in a cave, doing their own thing, hidden away from the rest of the world for months on end, and then they'll just throw specs and a PSD file over the fence at developers and, and developers would have to deal with it begrudgingly. And then sometimes they'd come back and say, we can't do any of that. Right. I imagine so, like a, a courier, like this, this cartoony image of like a courier bringing this big stack of, of paper over to like the, the engineering team and the engineering team filtering through and be like, that's not possible. I prefer the Steve Jobs approach with a giant presentation. This is what you get. That sounds exactly. awesome. Exactly. Exactly. So this is sort of like uh, a way to over a process and a system to try and create a more functional team. Um, and, and again, I, process is great. The tools are awesome. And we're going to review some of those things. But I think like primarily the biggest thing is to have mutual appreciation and respect for each for the roles on the team and do your best to be a team. And that means we're going to compromise at certain points. You're going to build things that maybe as a developer, you're going to, you know, be building things that are more difficult and complex than you think they should have to be. And sometimes as a designer, um, you're going to, you know, you're going to be, you're going to want the perfect thing to be built. You're going to want to discover what the perfect thing needs to be. And product can't always wait for that. And especially since there's a timeline where it needs to be built. So, so being a team is just so crucial and critical in approaching everything like that. Yeah, that's one of the critical failures that Ben talks about when he's kind of introducing the friction there. Uh, like when you are uh, working 
ahead of time, like if, if UX and design is working really far ahead of time, then it doesn't get that kind of developer feedback or that agi- that embeddedness into the agile process. Uh, and like you said, the product can't necessarily wait on perfection. The MVP process is about, you know, identifying what's most important and eliminating or deferring things that can't happen right away. And so if you have this pristine Photoshop and it's not what gets delivered uh, that can be a frustrating. That can be a frustration on both sides. Absolutely. He also talks about how it's possible to have your agile, your your UX researcher embedded directly into the agile team completely. And he talks about this tension where if every story has like a UX research bullet point or acceptance criteria, and that research could take days or weeks or months, then it kind of freezes up and destroys the agile process, right? Uh, and so that there's also like this this kind of counterpoint where if if the if every part of the process is too embedded that it kind of destroys what what agile software should be uh, so that that's interesting i don't think i've ever worked on a team where we've literally paused the process to perform new ux research have you ex- ever experienced anything like that no um at least in my experience it's been more of like trying to get buy in from the stakeholders so one of the major projects I'm working on, uh, they'll a lot of times create the design and then use that as kind of a demo to get buy-in and get funding for the project, that part of the project. And then is it, if it's approved, we'll actually go through and build it. Um, so in some ways, that's almost counter to what this article is because design does become a blocker just because you have to have approval from it, from the stakeholders. Interesting, though, I think that this might be another term we can use there, which is instead of a blocker, it's, it's a driver of, of the motion, right? So, and it really depends on organization size um, and how the organization as a whole approaches managing projects and how they look at things internally. Because in that instance, this division has an idea of what they think will solve the problem then they want to bring their problem to a certain point where they, they've got a solution to propose, right? Then they present that solution to get sign-off from the money in the organization. Then that comes back in. Where I think that the breakdown happens is when sign-off happens and then that thing just comes back in as truth, as being like, this is what we're going to do. I've always sort of looked at design in two different lenses. There's design that we do that's sort of vision design, where we take all of the things that we know would be great and are inspiring and create motion and are, are sort of like the thing you put on the wall that you move towards, your goals, your ideals. And you create that early on as sort of, it's like a goal, like you're putting that out there. And vision instead of impl- like precise implementation. Exactly. And then, and that, that is the thing that allows you to get buy-in, maybe get funding or whatever those things might be. But when you start building the product, you have to start at square one, right? A goal that like we always have, and we always really try and drive to is, is being able to iterate on a product, have a, a minimum viable product, something that um, has enough features that provides value to your users. uh, And you release that and then you keep adding and building on that. And through that process, using some of these tools mentioned in this article, you're learning a lot, right? And so as you learn, 
you might need to alter where you're going. And that's, I think, where it falls on its face when you go and present that stuff and then you bring it back and this is what we're building and it's very waterfall-like at that point. We always push to, to sort of break those two things up mentally. So say, here's a potential place we could go and we're not going to end up in this place and that's a good thing, right? But we'll, we'll make that so that everybody can wrap their heads around what the idea is. Then we'll go back and we do iterative design where we'll, we'll take whatever the current feature set is that we're working on and we'll design for that so that we have a current roadmap, right? So you, um, have like a, you don't have like a bunch of empty spaces where it's like feature X would be here if it was in this iteration. I mean, how many times have you seen, uh, have you experienced that, right? I mean, in the past, we've all experienced that where we have this awesome, fully baked design where some of these features are like, months and months long features because there's so much depth to the you know functionality and so they don't get built and and you build it one piece at a time and so you have this really like funky disjointed looking thing because all of these yeah these gaps are where features should be but they're not there yet yeah i've 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 sorry i've absolutely seen that with features that are like on the periphery like you know, if you have like an interface and it has a bunch of things and like, oh, well, there's this little thing in the design document that shows like a filter at the top. And it's like, well, that filter is maybe like twice the scope of just getting the list there. And it's like, you know, 2% of the visual space on the screen. And so it's happened a lot where I've actually gotten finished designs that have like these little, little itty bitty things that are visually very small, but were never part of any design scope conversation and that that as a as a developer that that's actually infuriating <laughs> like you, you you snuck in this little itty bitty thing that uh that actually makes the project much much longer and so that you know that that's obviously not an ideal situation to end up in so Talking through a quick use case, there's uh, we we had we had a client where and this is this is like I think a healthy example of how it could work. A client who one of their big features was was this dashboard feature that that brought sort of all the pieces of the app together in a way that allowed a user, a specific type of user to manage projects and communicate back and forth and see all of the deals that they were working and those types of things. And so they, the, the stakeholders, they needed to see that, A, the problem was understood, right? So we really understood the problem. And B, that as a, as a group, we had our heads wrapped around the problem enough to be able to, to come up with a, a solid solution for, for what they deemed were the needs at the time. And so we created this thing. And, um, and it was great. It, it was beautiful. And, and they signed off on that as being like, yes, this is a good direction. And then we had the discussion. We were like, okay, so that's what could be. We're not going to end up there. Like th- we had that conversation through the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Then we reset and we started with the very first set of features. And we designed for that. And what was crazy was the dashboard ended up in a drastically different place. There was entire messaging systems that didn't end up being in the dashboard because as we were working through it, it was like, oh, well, that actually doesn't make sense to be there. Or there was other things where they had third-party relationships that were dependent on those features. And those relationships, they ended up deciding, oh, we're going to go a different way now, right? So that whole feature set 
wasn't part of the dashboard. But yet other feature sets went deeper in scope because they realized there was more need for the, the client to be able to, at a, at a bird's eye view, see certain things, right? So the dashboard ended up in a drastically different place. But because of the way we framed the, the, the adventure, if you will, they were stoked by the process. And, um, and they trusted it, and it worked really well, and it provided a great outcome in that instance. But if you put the reality, what we actually built, side by side with the original sort of like vision design, I mean, it's like you, they don't even, they're, they're not even the same app. That sounds like a great success story. So the, the, in that case, the stakeholders, it wasn't a problem for them that they weren't like at the end of the project, well, we need our money back because this, uh, this thing doesn't look like this doc, design document you sent us six months ago. That that was not the case. They were they were happy. That right there has to do with a whole different part of the process, and that is the fact that we have very very high integration with their team and their stakeholders. So the communication. So their stakeholders were abreast of all of the designs as they were coming down the pipe, and anytime we delivered features as a team, they were testing them and understanding them and seeing them. So they were part of the process. It wasn't like, hey, we sign off on this thing. And then six months later, we get something that is a totally different beast. No, no, like it can't work. That is a critical part of working like this, right? If you work in a way where you have this design and you get approval on that design and then nobody sees it again until it's built, you, you actually have to build that design. You actually have to try and accomplish that because that's what was agreed on. But what we did was we agreed that this was a great way to show that we had our heads wrapped around the problem and a, and a solution. And um, along the way, we made new agreements every time we had a new design for where we were currently at and going next. And those, those agreements stacked on each other, right? That's awesome. Uh, it sounds like that, that process that you went through with that client lines up to agree with some of the ideas that, that Ben shares in the article. He, he, likes, he, he explained that he divides UX research into, like, into two categories that can fit in different parts of the project. Uh, process. Uh, he talks about foundational versus directional research, where foundational research is this kind of upfront async with the, t- or or maybe like asynchronous with the team research, where you're figuring out the dom- the problem domain and doing user interviews or uh, figuring out your like the the what he calls the ethnographics of your of your user base, whereas the directional research can happen simultaneously with the development process uh, where we can answer simple questions using UX research, like where should the button be? Or if we A-B test these different layouts, which one leads the user to the action we're, we're trying to get to? Knowledge is like doing that process in place, like help agility, like it, you know, these, these kinds of questions can be answered while we're developing things instead of like before or after. But it also like it's aided by the fact that you're embedded with the developers, right? You, you can set up A-B tests and you can set up uh, different, different versions of things to test out, which I, I thought think, was super interesting. I think the biggest thing uh, overall is communication. It's not just communication between the designers and the developers and the stakeholders like we've talked about, but it's also conversations with the users and trying to include that research. And you know, a good UX process is communication through and through across the board. That's horizontally, and, yeah, vertically, horizontally, like every direction people are talking. It's a team-wide mindset to say, who are why are we doing this thing? 
right? Like what's our purpose here? And if your purpose is to serve people and solve a problem that people are having, yes, like one of your big value statements is that you have a great idea to, to try and solve that problem. That's a great place to start. But you need to validate that what you're doing is solving people's problem. And if it's not, understand why it's not. Have different hypotheses, different ideas as to how, and then reapproach that. And I think a, a big problem that we end up getting into is we have lots of biases built, built in, right? And so, A, we think that we know what should be a good solution because it would work for us potentially. And B, based on what we've made before, we think we know certain things will work every time. But we also know through research that that's not true, that context is everything, that different demographics respond very differently to different types of interfaces and ways of accomplishing their tasks. So it's a mindset thing to say, really wrap your head around why you're doing it and what the, what the, what's our team's purpose and outcome, and then work together to achieve that. And then that friction of, it's a healthy friction. There should be friction there. Like there should be compromising happening on the team where somebody has an idea and they're really pushing for it. They did some research and they're bringing that research to the table. And, um, and then there's a, there's, there's a product owner that says, we need to get something out by X. Like we need to, we need to push this thing forward. So yeah, you're, you're truncating your research a bit potentially, but research should be ongoing, right? Not just upfront. And so we're going to say, okay, we might not get it right the first time. And the reality is you're not, it's never perfect and it shouldn't be. It's all meant, software is meant to be iterated on. It's not a physical product that you make and ship once and it's done, right? Not anymore, at least. Yeah. So. I think it's also holding on to those concepts loosely. As a designer and a developer, it's easy to be like, I love how this looks. Of course I want to implement it. Or I've spent hours coding this out. Like it has to work. And that might not be what's best for the project. Yeah. I wonder, you know, going back to that communication point you brought up, Amy, how do you know, or like, how do people end up in these scenarios where you can't, you don't feel like you're safe to have a conversation about like what's important or feedback in either direction? Like I've, I've been on teams where, where there's been these kind of uh, challenges around actually giving feedback to like constituencies and, and stakeholders when you, when you see a problem, like how do people end up in those situations and how can they avoid them? Yeah, I think uh, one of the cool things that we do on our teams though is we have a daily stand up with the team that we're working with. And so it's, it's hard almost to get to the end of the project and people not know what's going on because you've had daily conversations about those small decisions that you're making. And so small decisions that eventually end up in big decisions. So just increasing the frequency of these conversations can sometimes be a way to move in a better direction then. Yeah, definitely. And I think at the end, you know, you know how you arrived there. That's the other thing is just making sure that there's no surprises. And if you're talking along the way, then it's not a surprise when you finally reach your destination. You know, and it might I, be, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, the other thing is you were talking about safety and having those conversations. And when you're having daily conversations, it almost feels safer because you have a relationship with the people that you're working with. You know, so it's not an issue. And if people are afraid of long meetings, having those daily meetings, those meetings could be 
10, 20 minutes if they're run efficiently. Uh, they don't have to, you know, as, as, a, as a developer, I've definitely been in situations where I'm in just bad meetings all day long, but I've actually grown to really love standups because they give, they are an invitation to bring problems to the table. Um, and uh, they, they don't tend to take very long. Whereas it seems like if you're more siloed, uh, it, it can be very, you know, it can take a lot of emotional bandwidth to be bringing up problems when there's not a place for it. Well, retros also make a big difference because it allows you to kind of zoom out a little bit and look at the overall process. This really brings up a key point, um, I think, in being able to run a process like this. And that is that on an Agile team, one of the key principles of Agile is conversation over documentation. It doesn't mean no documentation. You definitely need to have, you know, appropriate documentation and be documenting what has been communicated uh, really well. But that said, you need to have some other tools and some other process that makes it so that you're not also just in meetings all the time. And that's something else that I hear a lot of complaints about in the Agile community, especially newcomers to the Agile community, is it just feels like it's meeting heavy and these types of things. And I think part of that is that the tool, the, the tooling's not in place, uh, as well as, um, you know, a very uh, a fairly structured process that ensures enough communication, but not too much, like time boxing meetings and those types of things. Right. Um, I've definitely been on teams where all the communication happens inside of meetings instead of using project management tools that, you know, we don't have to have a meeting to talk about how we're going to change this button. We could just hash it out and get opinions and, and solve it offline, essentially. Totally. And that's broken too. If you go, I mean, all extremes are, are broken. There's this like middle ground and these tools. So um, definitely uh, if you're listening, go to the show notes, take a look at the article that's linked in there. We're also going to link in, uh, to a couple other things that I'll, I'm, I would like to mention right now, but in that, in this article, there's some really great examples. There's a cheat sheet for lean UX principles that if you're not familiar with, you should really just take a look at. And it's a pretty extensive article that covers um, covers sort of the gamut of, of UX on, on a project as we, as we are familiar with it today. And that's ever-changing. But uh, the other thing that we'll link to that I think that I've uh, really found a lot of success with uh, in, in the, especially the early parts of a project is design sprints. So Google Ventures was, I mean, it's been these processes and tools have been around for a long time. A lot of different people have been utilizing them and, and bringing them forward and sharing them with people. But Google Ventures actually wrote, you know, wrote a book and published a really awesome site that supports, you know, just exploration and understanding and implementation of design sprints. And they're a five-day process that the whole goal of that is to to do to uh, there's front loaded some research. So the research happens prior to the design sprint. Then you come into the design sprint and you do, do essentially presentation of the research. You do some discovery, you do some design, uh, you build a prototype and then you do some user testing and you do that all within five days. And you do that with the team, including developers and stakeholders. So it's not just designers and, you know, off by themselves. It's, a, it's the team working together. And it sounds like this really heavy process that takes too much time. And what's crazy to me about that thought is that five days in the scope of a project is 
minuscule. It really is a very, very small right. percentage of the time. But what you learn and front load in your understanding of your project project is immense and it's bought into by everybody on the team. So you're all a team at that point. You're cohesive. You have a good understanding of where you're going. You have a functional prototype and you have users that are validating or telling you really early on that that's not going to work for them, right? So, I, I mean, these processes, if you haven't done them and they, you know, and, and you have some trust issues around it, first really understand how they work and then give them a shot, give them a try yeah. and maybe even bring in a coach to help you with that. Interesting. Uh, it, it's cool as well to, you know, make sure that you're incorporating that user conversation as well in there. So let's let's uh, let's let's wrap up and, and come back. Is there any uh, parting advice you would give listeners about trying to improve their their design and, and development process? You know, with with these tools. I'll start with Trevor. Yeah, I, I guess at the end of the day, uh, the goal is understand what your purpose is, why you're building it. Are you sir? Are you actually building it to serve a purpose? And if that's the case, then serve that purpose, not your own. And two, really good communication, uh, build trust, and 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 be a team. Awesome. Keep. I was going to say that's not fair. You got two. <laughs> oh, okay. You said one. Well, I was going to say communication is huge. Uh, you know, yeah. just to me, that solves. It almost seems like it solves everything. It solves the research component. It solves your stakeholder component. It solves inner team issues. Like communication is key. I hate that cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason. Yep. We've all been on teams where communication has been poor and it always, everything always suffers. So uh, any, any, I'll give you the very last word, Amy. Any last parting advice for teams that are struggling with this? I think just to talk about it. Um, you know, the easiest thing on the teams that I've been in is if you start with a retro because it allows you to zoom out and allows you to create solutions, not just harp on the problems. That's great. That's great advice. Well, let's, uh, let's conclude. Thanks everyone for listening. If you want even more interestings, please sign up for our newsletter at codingzeal.com slash interestings or follow us on Twitter at codingzeal. Thanks everyone.